If you have your Bibles handy, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll, we'll dip a little bit into 1 Samuel chapter 2 as well. There we go. The Apostle Paul began the tradition of honoring mothers. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith. He's reminded of Timothy's faith and he's reminded where it came from. He says, obviously, ultimately it came from God, but through, through people it was passed to him. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and, I, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So, 1 Samuel chapter 1, we are going to be doing a verse-by-verse -verse study through the first chapter, and then I will dip a little bit into chapter 2. This is a familiar story. It's the story of Hannah and the birth of her son Samuel, and Hannah's name means favor or grace, and my desire today is to leave you ladies encouraged and to give you hope that you can find yourself in the favor of God despite the messy situation that you may find yourself in. Milton Vincent, uh, Carolyn's pastor from Riverside, he said, no woman I've ever met goes into marriage thinking, you know what, I'm going to mess things up. Most women dream of having a model marriage, of having a model home, and of themselves being a model wife and a model parent. However, it is not long into marriage that most women realize that they can't have a model marriage because they are not married to a model husband. And even more painful to themselves is the realization that they themselves have fallen woefully short of what they thought they would be as a wife. It's not very long into mothering that a mother looks at her children and realizes that she does not have model children. And even more painful to her is the awareness that she herself has fallen woefully short of what she thought she would be as a mother to her children. Every woman at some point into her marriage and into home life and into motherhood experiences profound disappointment in herself and even in her circumstances as the reality falls far short of the dream. And that can create a discouragement in the hearts of many women. In the midst of this disappointment, their thought is, I guess my dreams are not going to be fulfilled of being a model of all these things. So God can't really do much with me. In fact, some moms look at their marriage and their home life and they say, what a mess. I think this concept crosses over to men as well. We had grand expectations of what we would become and how wonderful our families would be and how successful we would be in our marriage, in our business, in our ministry, and we find ourselves falling short of the dream. 
Brenda Payne says, A mother is one who gives life. But these days, far from feeling like a life giver, you feel drained of life. Perhaps you are looking around at all the other good Christian mothers with their good Christian children, and you're wondering, what's wrong with me and my kids? How can I be failing at one of the most important things in all of life? Parenthood. How could I mess up something I was so looking forward to doing? Now today I want you to be encouraged by Hannah and how God does great things through her life despite the mess she finds herself in. So we're going to look at the circumstances of her life, which are quite messy. We're going to look at what she does, and then we're going to look at what is a mess. This is not the situation we think God would use to do something that would change the course of world history. But that's the kind of God we serve. He not only works in spite of our messes, but he actually uses the mess to accomplish his work. So let's jump into the mess. Verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. I know you wanted to know all that. Verse 2 says, He had two wives, which I'm sure made Mother's Day interesting. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children... But Hannah had no children. So from the text, it seems that Hannah was Elkanah's first wife. Imagine a young girl. She has a wedding. She prepares to give herself to her husband. And she has all this, these dreams of what life will be like as his wife. And one of those dreams, one of the dreams of every Jewish girl, was to give children to her husband. But Hannah can't have children. So very quickly in her marriage, her dream starts to disintegrate. Her reality falls far short of the dream. She can't give Elkanah children, and she can't help him carry on the family name. Elkanah realizes this problem, and like a typical male, he works on a solution. He is the fix-it guy. He will slap a solution onto this problem. He thinks to himself, if Hannah can't give me children, I will find someone who can. So to add insult to injury, Elkanah takes on a second wife and marries Penina. And it works. Practically every year, Penina is popping out another kid. Penina had at least five children that she was able to give Elkanah. And very quickly, a rivalry developed between these two women. Elkanah had solved one problem only to create a myriad of other problems. Matthew Henry says, It is probable that Elkanah married Hannah first. And because he had Hannah first, and because... He had not her so soon as he hoped. 
he married Penina, who bore him children indeed, but was in other things a vexation to him. Thus are men often beaten with rods of their own making. So this is the Rachel and Leah story all over again. The loved wife versus the prolific wife. One wife has the joy of bearing children and the other has the joy of being loved by her husband. And both are miserable because they both want what the other wife has. Hannah had the pain of Rachel. And Elkanah, like Jacob and Rodney King, thought to himself, can't we all just get along? And the answer was a clear and certain no. Every year, the family took a trip to Shiloh. And on the way there, and after they got there, things always got ugly. Verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. So Elkanah slay an animal, and a portion of the sacrifice was used for a worship meal in God's presence. Elkanah would divvy out the portions to his family, giving Penina and her children single portions, but to Hannah, a double portion, or it can be translated a worthy portion. So either she received twice as much or she just got a really nice cut of meat. Maybe the filet mignon. And it was obvious, especially to Penina, that Hannah was getting the better portion. Elkanah wanted to express his love to his wife. He cherished her. He sought to honor her. But despite that, verse 5 says, The Lord had closed her womb. It almost seems like this statement had become Hannah's identity. She was the lady with no children. She wore a scarlet bee for barren. And Penina notices. She notices the double portion, and she's roused to jealousy. Also, she realizes that barren Hannah has a weakness, a vulnerability. Verse 6. And her rival, can also be translated her adversary or her competitor, words used to describe Satan himself, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So Penina, lacking any compassion for Hannah, decides to hit her where it hurts. She makes jabs at Hannah and does whatever she can to get under Hannah's skin and to provoke her to frustration. Verse 7, So it went on year by year. This didn't happen just once. It was year after year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. 
So this scene happened every year, and it was ugly. Maybe you might think of a repetitive holiday that gets a little ugly in your family. Well, this is what's going on here. Hannah is going to the temple for worship, an event that should have been accompanied by rejoicing, but Hannah would dread it. She wouldn't eat. She's sitting in front of this double portion that Penina is coveting, and she's so sad, so miserable, so downcast that she won't even eat. Enter the fix-it man. Elkanah sees that she refuses to accept this honor that he gives her, and he thinks to himself, this has gone too far. I give Hannah this gift of love. She won't even eat it. So he jumps in and tries to fix the situation. And Elkanah asks his wife four questions. The first three are good questions. And all the women readers get hopeful that Elkanah is going to give his wife some comfort. But that fourth question. Oh, that fourth one. It's a major blunder. Verse 8. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Three good questions. It seems that Elkanah is on the right track. This is pretty good for a guy. He recognizes that she's sad. He's not Mr. Oblivious. And then he asks her what's troubling her. It seems like he cares about her feelings. He wants to know what she's going through. We're expecting some empathy and encouragement, maybe some hugs and kisses. And then he gets to question four and ruins everything. Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, Elkanah didn't start this conversation to get Hannah to open up and share her heart. No, Mr. Fix-It wants to slap a Band-Aid on the problem. He wants Hannah to suck it up and stop ruining his good time. He wants her to realize how good she's got it to have a husband like him. So basically he's saying, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? What is there to be sad about when you've got me? Elkanah thinks, that should do it. She'll be happy now. And what happens at this point is the exact opposite of what Elkanah is aiming for. The exact opposite of what he expected. He expects her to push her feelings down and just start having a good time. But I imagine what ha really happens is that she bursts into tears. Imagine how she's feeling. I can't have children. I can't have my husband to myself. I have to share him with this terrible woman who constantly makes jabs at me, who constantly rubs it in that she has all these kids and I don't have any. I'm miserable, and I'm depressed, and my husband doesn't get it. He doesn't understand what I'm feeling. He just wants me to slap a smile on my face and pretend like everything's just grand. Well, it's not. Now, we don't know how Hannah replied to these four questions. Maybe she doesn't reply, or maybe it's just not fit for the record. 
I imagine she wanted to say, I've got you? Oh, really? How can you say, I've got you, when you went off and married another woman? What does she do? We see in verse 10, she wanders off into the temple and she weeps. She weeps bitterly. Hannah is a broken woman and she just can't take it anymore. This is a mess. This is the mess that Hannah finds herself in. There's anxiety and discord in her family. The word family doesn't bring up the pleasant feelings that it should. And home is not a place of safety. It's really ugly. This is not the kind of situation that we would expect God to use to change the course of world history. To do something that hundreds of years later would end up being part of the plan of salvation for us today. This morning I want to share with you six actions Hannah takes that God used to do something world-altering. Now sometimes when you're in a mess, you just want something to do. Is there anything I can do to improve things? And often God in His grace gives us something to do. Something that he will use to bring about his good purposes. So what did Hannah do? Number one, Hannah takes her sorrow to God and pours out her heart in soul-emptying prayer. It reminds me of watching The Passion of the Christ for my first and only time. I remember I cried until I could not cry anymore. I had nothing left. Hannah may be thinking, no one understands me, not even my husband. I need to take my sorrows somewhere. So she goes to the Lord. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now that is after everyone else had eaten, not Hannah. I imagine she's sitting there quietly, trying not to make a scene. Ever been there? Looking for her moment to escape. She's thinking, I got to get out of here. I can't handle this anymore. Continuing in verse 9. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She's deeply distressed. Hannah was overwhelmed with sorrow, depression, and grief. Literally, she was bitter of soul. And when she was bitter of soul, what did she do? She prayed. Where do we go when we're bitter of soul? Often we pour out our pain in the form of anger on those who have hurt us. But not Hannah. She doesn't lay into Elkanah. She doesn't attack Penina. But she pours out her heart to the Lord. Often I feel like I've got to clean up my act before I go to God. I've got to get well before I go to the hospital. I look within me and what I see is just vile. I'm full of hatred, anger, bitterness. 
But God would say, bring that to me. John, bring your bitter butt over here. Bring your bitter self to me and pour out your heart to me. I'm a big God. I can take it. I've got strong shoulders. I can carry your load. Later, Hannah describes her prayer to Eli in verse 15 and 16. She says, I've been pouring out my soul. I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Now, Hannah is not just praying ho-hum prayers. This isn't just, dear God, thank you for this day. Pray that everything would go nice and well for my family. Amen kind of prayers. This is soul-emptying type of prayer. She pours out the contents of her heart in gut-wrenching, soul-emptying prayer until there's nothing left. Until she's gotten everything off her chest. She has one question, one request. Give your servant a son. Hannah is asking the Lord for a miracle. But she should realize that a miracle has already occurred. The fact that Hannah is on her knees crying out to God and not planning the assassination of Penina is truly a miracle. But also, God has brought her to this place of desperation where she can pray like she could never pray before. Oh God, do this miracle in us. Bring us to the place of desperate prayer. What does God want to do in your family? What does God want to do in the situation that you find yourself in? The first miracle that he may want to do is to bring you to your knees, to have you pour out your heart to him and trust him to work. Number two, Hannah surrenders to God what she wanted more than anything. And God starts to do a work in her heart. She wanted a son for herself. A son that she could give to Elkanah. But it seems that God is showing her that her motives might be off a bit. And look what she prays in verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. My son will be under a Nazarite vow. As Hannah is praying, it seems like she has this moment of clarity. She realizes that her desire for a son has become too important to her. So important that it has become a form of idolatry in her heart. So she destroys the idol. She gives her desire to have a son the death blow by saying, God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. He won't be my son. He won't be Elkanah's son. He will be yours all the days of his life. It seems that her heart is beginning to change. 
Number three, Hannah changes her countenance before God changes her circumstances. Look at verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Penina has attacked her. Elkanah just doesn't understand. And now the priest of God accuses her of being drunk. This is a bad day. Basically, he says, why don't you go away and sober up, then come back and pray. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. You know, it's okay to say when you're not doing very well. (laughs) It's okay to say I'm having a really bad day. That's what Hannah does here. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I'm not drunk. I'm depressed. I'm miserable. I have not been pouring alcohol into myself, but I have been pouring out the contents of my heart to the Lord. Verse 16, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. So again, Hannah refuses to fight back. She doesn't retaliate, but she educates. She explains the situation to Eli. Eli has compassion on her. He says, may the Lord grant your request. May he give you what you desire. And notice she says, let your servant find favor. Let Hannah, whose name means favor, find favor in your eyes. Hannah is making her way back to her name. Back to her identity. And I think some of us, we need to make our way back to our identity in Christ. Like we sang earlier, I am who you say I am. I am not what they say I am. I am who you say I am. And Eli does find favor with her. He blesses her. He says, go in peace and may God grant your petition. This gives us a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. We come to him a mess and he grants us favor. Jesus, our great high priest, he is the one who secures the blessing for us and it is his words that give us peace. Continuing verse 18, then the woman went her way and ate And her face was no longer sad. She picks herself up. She thinks to herself, I think I'll go back and eat that double portion. 
Her face was no longer sad. Literally, it means, it's, it says, her face was no more. Her sad, hurt, angry, confused, frustrated, bitter face was gone. That face was no more. Hannah had a new face. The face of a woman who had given up her idolatry. The face of a woman who had found favor with God. The face of a woman who had hope. Now imagine how this scene plays out back at the dinner table. Hannah left depressed. Penina is thinking, boy, I got her good. Now Hannah floats back in, flashes a smile, looks down at her double portion, and begins to eat. I'm sure Elkanah noticed that there was something different on her face. I'm sure Penina noticed the change in Hannah's countenance. She must have thought to herself, what's going on here? Hannah must know something that I don't know. Ladies, when God wants to do a work in your life, sometimes he wants to start with your face. He wants to start with your countenance. When people see your face, let them wonder why there is so much hope, why there is so much faith, and make them curious so they think to themselves, she must be in on something. She must know some secret that I don't know. In the classic Marvel movie, The Avengers, the good guys have captured Loki. Got to throw the guys a bone here. And the Abaglins. So they have captured Loki, the villain. It's only halfway through the movie, and they already have the bad guy imprisoned in a glass capsule. But Loki is cool as a cucumber. He flashes this clever smile that is unnerving to the guys who have him trapped. They get so thrown off by his pleasant demeanor that Colonel Nick Fury questions the superheroes. He says, if everything is all right, then why do I get the feeling that Loki is the only one on this ship who wants to be here? Loki knows something that they don't know. He knows there's a plan in place. He knows he's going to escape. Can I encourage you with that? You know something that the world does not you know that your God will work everything out for your good. There is a plan in place. You are going to escape this mess. Your God has good things in store for you. So Hannah realizes this and she changes her countenance. Now think about it. Her circumstances have not changed. She's not pregnant. She has no son. And even if she does get a son, now she's got to give him right back to God. But that's okay. Because she has put her idol to death. And she is fully trusting in her wonderful God to make something beautiful 
out of this mess. Number four, Hannah remembers and acknowledges that her pregnancy is answered prayer. The next day, the family gets up at the crack of dawn, and the new Hannah joins the family in worshiping the Lord. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. God had truly given her favor. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Literally, the boy's name means prayer request. Prayed for of God. Answered prayer. Not only does Hannah go to God, ask God, and trust God before anything changes, but when things do change, when she does get pregnant, she remembers that this is in response to prayer. John Corson says, in naming her baby, Hannah remembered that this delivery was in response to her prayer made nine months earlier. I'm convinced the biggest problem in our prayer lives is forgetting what we prayed for. When the answer to our prayer comes nine days, months, or years after we asked, we say, wonderful, but forget it is an answer to what we were praying for previously. Here's the key. Forgetting what I prayed for previously causes me to think God is not responding to my prayers presently. Often we get discouraged in prayer because we fail to pay attention when God answers those prayers. If we remember our prayer requests, then when God answers, that will lead us to rejoice, to worship him. And it will give us increased motivation to keep being people of prayer. To keep being people who are faithful to get down on our knees and cry out to the Lord for help. Hannah remembers and acknowledges that her pregnancy is answered prayer. Thank you. So Hannah has the thrill of rejoicing in answered prayer. And I think Elkanah was rejoicing with her. It seems clear from the following verses that Hannah had actually shared her request and her vow with Elkanah. And Elkanah had joined with Hannah in this commitment and made his own vow to the Lord. Verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. From the context, most commentators think that Elkanah's vow was connected with his wife's vow and their prayer that God would give Hannah a son. In Numbers chapter 30, you can check it out later, if a wife made a commitment, the husband, upon hearing of it for the first time, he could overturn the commitment. So when Hannah says, Honey, I committed our child to work in the temple for the rest of his life. Elkanah could have said, no, you didn't. I'm putting a nix on that one. 
But he didn't. He supported Hannah in her vow. And from the text, it looks like he went on not only to support her, but also to make his own vow. And now he's headed up to Shiloh to make good on that vow. Number five, Hannah follows through and behaves according to her surrender. Remembering she has put her idol to death. But before she gives up her son, she has to finish breastfeeding. Verse 22, but Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Hannah's not having any second thoughts. She is fully committed to giving her son back to God and to have him serve the Lord forever. And Elkanah is fully supporting her. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. And that can also be translated, may the Lord establish your word. He's speaking to Hannah. Basically, Elkanah is saying, I'm standing with you on this one, honey. Do what you think is best, but be sure to follow through on the commitment that you have made to God. Continuing in verse 23, so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Samuel's probably around age three at the time. Jewish mothers usually weaned their kids around age two or three years old. They were a little granola. I'm sure they ate organic and wore Birkenstocks. And they would have fit in very well here in Sonoma County. Now, ladies, don't worry. There is no biblical command that says, Thou shalt nurse thy child until three years of age. But again, there's no command against it either. Verse 25. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman. I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. Let me introduce you to prayer request. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Notice what a great work that God has done in Elkanah's heart in Hannah's heart on this issue of idolatry. It's over. There are no second thoughts. She's not keeping this son for herself and she's not keeping him for Elkanah. She's bringing him to the temple and she comes with three things. A bull, flour, and wine. Now what's that about? These are the three items that are brought to the Lord when someone makes a Nazarite vow. And I guess if it's a three-year-old making a Nazarite vow, mama's got to bring the stuff. Hannah is committed to this. Elkanah is committed to this. But the thing that you might find surprising 
is that this three-year-old boy, Samuel, is committed as well. Look at the last sentence of the chapter. And he worshipped the Lord there. Who worshipped the Lord? The only he that's mentioned in the verse. Samuel worshipped the Lord. He's going to have to say goodbye to mommy and daddy. He's going to have to live at the temple for the rest of his life. Now you'd expect to see lots of tears and a boy clinging to his mother's leg, refusing to go. But somehow, some way, this little boy knew that this was right and he was glad of it. And he worshiped the Lord. This little boy has a heart after God at three years of age. Quick word to the kids. Children, God can use you now. You can be a man or woman of God now. You don't have to wait until you're older. You kids, be children that love God, that worship God. Sing. When we're praising the Lord, sing along. Sing with all your heart. Sing to the God you love the God who has saved your soul. Lift up your voice. Lift up your hands and pray. Kids, pray like Hannah. Pour out your heart to the Lord and read. Read the word each day. I challenge any of you kids, Samuel's age or older, to be worshipers of God like Samuel. Now it's Mother's Day, kids. What do you think your mother wants more than anything? It's to see her kids worshiping God from their heart. Now it's time for Hannah's family to head on back. You expect Elkanah to have to drag Hannah out of there. You expect her to cry out, no, I can't do it. Second thoughts. I can't leave my son. But all you see is praise. Number six. Hannah worships God and thanks him for his wise and gracious providence. Chapter 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. This is Hannah speaking. Broken, fragile Hannah has come alive. This is a miracle. It's unbelievable the mighty work that God has done in Hannah's heart. She's not sorrowful. There's no bitterness of soul. Hannah is exulting. She's rejoicing at the greatness of God. And skip down to verse 10. Very interesting verse here. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. Somehow, Hannah realizes that God is doing something very grand here. Something that will affect the ends of the earth. She says, he will give strength to his king. 
That's curious. Because there are no kings in Israel at this point. Israel has never had a king. Hannah has never had a king. This is the time of the judges. Samuel would be the last judge, and he would be the one to anoint the first two kings of Israel. The whole history of Israel turns on the hinge of Hannah's prayer. Do you remember the book of Judges? Israel was a mess. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But God uses Hannah in her prayer request to bring the nation back to himself. Liberal commentators say, Hannah couldn't have said this. There's no way she could have known that there soon would be a king in Israel. But the Holy Spirit, speaking through Hannah, knew exactly what he was about to do. She says that God will exalt the horn of his anointed, of his Messiah. This is the first place in Scripture where Messiah is referred to as the Messiah out of the, the mouth of Hannah. Or in Hebrew, the word is Mashiach. So this is about 600 years before the birth of Christ when Hannah makes this statement. And it was this boy, Samuel, who anointed not only the first king, but also the first king of Judah, the king from whom would come the lineage of Christ. Jesus would obey all the commands of God perfectly, never sinning in his actions or his words, never disobeying God even in his thoughts. Then he would die on the cross for our sins, that whoever believes in him would be forgiven of all of their sins and be made right with God. As we close, let's consider the love of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. We see that God goes on to bless Hannah with more kids. After Samuel, she ended up having five more children, three sons and two daughters, six children in total. I like to think that that might just have been one more child than Benina had. So three points of application. Number one, no matter how ugly your mess may seem, you got to realize that here at Redemption Hill, there's a mess in every seat, except the empty ones. We're all struggling with our mess. You're not alone. And no ma matter how ugly your mess may seem, Take it to the Lord. Go to him. Cry out to him for help. Number two, is there anything you want so badly that it has become an idol in your heart? Surrender that to the Lord. Give your idol the death blow. And number three, trust that God is good and that he has good things in store for you. And let your hope Show up on your countenance. Let people see by looking at your face that you're in on a little secret. Milton Vincent says, you might look at your situation right now and say, what a mess. And I want you to know that God is a God. Take our messes and weave them all together 
to do something world-altering and significant. And you are not beyond the reach of God doing something amazing. The story is not over. God's chapters and your last chapter has not been written. The last chapter of your family has not been written. God is on the throne and he's powerful and he's working and he loves you and he loves your children more than you do. If you're here as a mother or even a dad and you feel like you've blown it in so many ways, I'd say join the club. You might say, I do look around and there's a big mess. I made the mess. Just know that Jesus died. He went to the cross exactly for those sins that mothers and those sins that dads commit. Jesus died for those. I believe that the day will come when we stand before God at the judgment and we say, and when God says, let me show you what I did with the good things you did. And we'll say, oh Lord, you're amazing. And then he's going to say, let me show you what I did with the mistakes you made. What I did with your failures. And we will fall on our faces in worship of this God who is so amazing. This is Jesus, if you haven't met him. He is the God who takes the messes of our lives and uses them to accomplish his work in the world. Why don't you stand and let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you with our mess and it's ugly. Lord, bring us to a place of brokenness before you. Cause us to pray soul-emptying prayers. Destroy our idols. Lord, we are looking to you this morning to do something good. Lord, give us hope. Speak hope over our souls. Change our countenance before you change our circumstances. Do the miracle of driving us to our knees. And Lord, use our lives and use our families to accomplish your good purposes in the world.